Hi, welcome back to Get Mad with yours truly. Today, I have a very special guest, Mr. Jonathan Vankin. Uh, he is a journalist, author, comic book writer, and a screenwriter. And he's written uh, about conspiracies, and that's where I actually am familiar with him, uh, mostly. But also with uh, DC Comics and Swamp Thing. Well, welcome to the show, uh, Mr. Vankin. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm really glad to do it. Well, well, thank you for taking the time. Um, first off, I was just wondering what what got your interest uh, with conspiracies? Because uh, I've been studying them for I don't know the better part of 25 years now, maybe 30 even. <laughs> well, you know, to be honest, I mean, when I first started doing it, it was quite a while ago. Um, really like my first book came out, which was called Conspiracy Cover-Ups and Crimes. Um, it came out in 1991. So, uh, I was a lot younger then. <laughs> and, uh, I'd been working on it for about two or three years before it came out. So, you know, it, it, at the time, I think the whole idea of conspiracy theories was very different than it is today. I mean, it was much more of sort of a forbidden topic, uh, type of thing that. Yeah. Uh, you know, people didn't talk about very much, whereas today they're in the news literally every day, um, yeah. for better or worse. And I think that, I think, you know, my point of view back then, and it sort of changed over time quite a bit, but, but back then my view was really that, um, you know, this, these conspiracy theories, this way of thinking about the world, um, you know, even though I didn't, I didn't really buy every single conspiracy theory. Some, some I think I have a lot to them. Others, not so much. I'm but saying, I, yeah. I found it a really interesting, interesting way of looking at the world. It's sort of like a way of of challenging authority. You know, challenging sort of consensus reality. And I was really interested in that, and I still am really interested in that. Um, so that's really what I tried to to do. And in, in the first book, I, I went out and I interviewed. Um, a number of pretty, at the time, you know, well-known in the sort of underground of conspiracy theories at that time, well-known people from all over the political, political spectrum, from, from the far right to the far left and anything I could find. And, and I interviewed them and did profiles of them. And I also tried to sort of put myself in, in, in their mindset. It's almost, it was almost like a, a book-length thought experiment. You know, I sort of thought of like Hunter Thompson and his participatory journalism where he like goes out and joins the Hells Angels or whatever. In, in <laughs> yeah. my mind, it was like I was sort of doing that mentally, you know, as like oh, mental gonzo. And I become yeah. one of these people. Yeah, yeah, it was sort of mental gonzo, at least in, in my in my mind. I don't know if it came out that way, but but um, but it was a really interesting experiment, and I think it, it, it definitely was a book that was. Um, you know, maybe a little ahead of its time. I don't really say that to brag about it. I just say that in that I feel like it's become such a such a popular and widely discussed topic now in the you know in the in the in the early 21st century. When I was writing about it in the late 20th century, 
Yeah. Um, you know, there wasn't quite the interest back then. I mean, there was definitely interest, and I, 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 the book, I'm very proud of how it did and all that stuff. But, um, but I think today it's it's much more would have been much more timely to do today. But it would have been a very different project at the time. So that's really how I got interested in it and why. You know, it was more it was more like, well, how do we challenge? you know, the sort of received wisdom that we get every day from the media, from academia, and so on and yeah. so forth, you know, and, and that's really how I got into it, and, and it was a giant experiment. I always found it to be like, um, you're just basically being, uh, it's someone that's a, a critic of the official narrative or the official story that we're told. Exactly, exactly, and I think that was, you know, again, that's what really got me interested in it, it's like, and I think, you know, I think also back then just things were very different than they are now. And, and um, you know, this was before there was quite, well, before the Internet, really. And it was or what the Internet has became yeah. starting in the late 90s. Um, you know, before, before September 11th, too. It was well before September 11th. And it was also, you know, just as importantly, it was before the time when there was just, you know, we're just showered in media these days. We can't, you can't escape it. It's a 24 hour, seven day a week thing. Back yeah. then, really, there was CNN, which had sort of just really started and wasn't, um, you know, it, it was influential, but it wasn't the major force that it soon became. And that was it. There was no MSNBC, there was no Fox News. There was obviously no internet. There wasn't even that much talk radio, really. There was some, but, but it wasn't the big thing that it, that it, soon became um so really you know the media was much more i guess i'd say insular you know yeah. things like you know you had a few publications you had the new york times washington post you know time magazine was big in still in those days so you had really a few voices that kind of dominated everything and if, if you really wanted to find alternative voices or different ways of looking at things you really had to seek it out you know you really had to Go to the library, physically take yourself there, which I obviously did on many, many occasions. I love libraries, but you know, these days there's not as much need, sadly, to go to a library. It's all not just on your computer. You can hold it in your hand. And this, like in this very device that I'm holding in my hand right now called an yeah. iPhone. It's like you can access worlds, you know, worlds, universes of knowledge. But back then it wasn't the case, obviously. So you really had to look hard to find you know, information or even opinions and points of view that conflicted with what you were getting from these rather narrow sources, you know, these maybe these, half a dozen or so sources. These mocking word media you know, three places. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, you had three, three TV networks and they each aired a half an hour, an hour of news every day. That was about it, you know? That was and this it. before, before that, they that's, like, that's what you got. It's before in the days before they decided uh, they realized that they could make money off of the news too. Uh, before they had to write it off as well, yeah. kind of yeah, yeah. And 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 I think I think in a way it was. I mean, on the one hand, it's a good thing, but on the other hand, it's sort of like well, it became sort of a way to not as much make money as it became to to achieve legitimacy for, for these TV networks, which, of course, again, back then, it's like TV, people kind of, a lot of people kind of looked down on it. Obviously, it was obviously hugely popular, but, but it yeah. wasn't, you know, 
this was again the days before you had things like Sopranos and The Wire and Mad Men and all these shows that, that, that established <laughs> TV as the sort of yeah Breaking Bad and and things that are on today The Last of Us or whatever that have established television as sort of a really legitimate medium where you can actually get good quality stuff back then you know you got charlie's angels and you got three's company you know you got a lot of crap and tv was was (laughs) mostly garbage and so you know and but you had news you know all these networks had news divisions and you had cbs news which was incredibly prestigious and so anyway i mean my point of, of of going off in that little tangent was to say that i think even the TV networks then, because they use their news divisions primarily for legitimacy as opposed to making a big profit, which came not too long after, but wasn't quite at that point. Um, They had a vested interest in sort of being part of the system, right? It's like the TV networks weren't the place where you're going to get something that wasn't the quote unquote official point of view, you know, because they were searching for legitimacy and approval and prestige. So again, to get, to get sort of get back to the main point, I think back then, you know, you had very narrow sources of information. They all kind of spoke with more or less the same voice. And you had to just look so hard to find anything different, anything out of the ordinary. And like I said, you had to go to the library, you had to go looking for newspapers like the village voice or the LA weekly or, you know, alternative papers, things like that. And you could find them, but it, but it was an effort, and not as many people did. It wasn't, again, it wasn't like now where you just pull up your phone and you can read anything. So I saw this, you know, this way of looking at the world, these quote-unquote, these conspiracy theories, as a way to kind of challenge that monolithic point of view and, and the sort of, um, I guess you'd say, uh, well, I use the word monolithic again, monolithic, uh, <laughs> you know, bastion of received information. And it was really frustrating to me at that time, and I think to lots of people. So so that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to explore some sort of different way of looking looking at the world. Um, obviously, Which, the world has changed now. The media landscape has changed, so a lot oh, of things yeah. have changed. Now, it- in your opinion, you had mentioned before, and I'm the same way. I don't buy into every single conspiracy theory myself either. Um, what were some of the ones that kind of had you going like, hmm, maybe there's really something to to this? And which ones were like so well, over the top that you were like, no, nah, that can't be? <laughs> well, you know, I, I did this book with a, with a really good collaborator. We co-authored named John Whalen, who was a good friend of mine and uh, fellow writer at this newspaper we worked at in San Jose, California. We, we wrote a book after I did my conspiracy cover-ups and crimes. We did a book that was initially called The 50 Greatest Conspiracies of All Time. Yes. And it since went into, I don't know, what, five editions? It became the 60, then the 70. And then the 80. <laughs> then the 80. Yeah. And then the late, last and final edition, they retitled The World's Greatest Conspiracies, but it's really 100. Yeah. So it's the hundred yeah. greatest conspiracies. And and in the in that book we, we kinda of divided things up by sections. And really the first section of the book was all things that were real, you know, that were documented. And some of those included things like uh the MK Ultra program, you know, the CIA's uh program that ran from like the fifties 
really through the 60s and maybe even into the 70s a little bit. That mind was control. like a mind yep. control program. Yeah, where they were experimenting with LSD and other drugs and other sort of techniques in, in, in this quest to sort of to see like how they, how you could control your agents and make them, you know, work for you. And, and God only knows what they were really trying to get at. So we talked about that. I talked about biological warfare. Um, we wrote about, oh, all sorts of things, really. Um, wrote about, jeez, uh, oh, the, uh, oh, boy, what was that one? We have a title called Excuse the Pentagon While They Cook the Sky, which was about, uh, I think, the HARP program. And, uh, yeah, out of Alaska. Sort of a, uh, yeah. yeah, in Alaska. So we wrote about that, which again was a real thing. But of course, there's all these conspiracy theories that, that built up around it. And, you know, we also did a, a chapter about the media and how the media works, sort of a lot of things I was just, just talking about, um, yeah. was a chapter called Big Lies. So, so that was really the start of, of the start of the book. And, you know, so if you, if you really want to find out what, what conspiracy theories, I think are have a lot of substance to them. That's probably where you'd find them. And then yeah, you go on and on in the book, and you, and there's a lot of things that I think are a little more, you know, we approach them kind of in some cases kind of tongue in cheek, and some they're yeah. just a, really far fetched. Um, I love you know, the tongue in cheek approach to like, a bunch of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, some of the stuff is pretty funny. I mean, a lot of like the, some of the UFO stuff. Um, yeah is pretty out there, uh, you know, and, and, and there's some things that aren't, I wouldn't exactly call funny, but that, but that, uh, it's hard to know what really happened. We have a whole chapter or not chapter, really a section called, uh, they died alone, which is all about like mysterious deaths that yeah. have a lot of, uh, um, conspiracy theories have grown up around. We talk about Marilyn Monroe. We talk about, um, the, the Pope, the first Pope John Paul, who suddenly mysteriously died 33 days into his That's term. Right. Uh, That's right. We talk right. about Wilhelm Reich and and, uh, and and things like that. So, and then you know we we talked about some of the uh, political stuff. I did a whole chapter. Again, this one was also well ahead of its time. Um, <laughs> and sometimes I wonder, like, if I really did the right thing even writing this because of what's happened since. But I did a, a chapter called Vote Scam. <laughs> And yes, where I talked about <laughs> conspiracy theories around voting, you know. And, and then there was the book vote scam, like the, too. Yeah, that came out. There was uh, a book vote scam. Yeah. yeah. And but I you were before that. the guys who wrote the book. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, right. I, I, I interviewed the two guys who wrote the book, and that was sort of where I got the idea for the title. But, um, but I also, you know, I had done previously uh, some actual real reporting about this type of thing for a couple of different newspapers, like alternative weekly newspapers. And, you know, at that time, you know, I felt, and a lot of other people felt, and, and, and I'm not talking about, like, crazy people. I'm talking, yeah. like, actual real serious journalists felt that, you know, this computerized voting at that time was not secure, and it, and it posed some real threats. And I think that, you know, a lot of that has, again, changed, and and... That has also that general idea we see now being exploited and uh, taken well out of context and well beyond anything that was originally the case. And of course, you know, I was writing about this first. I think the first story I did about it was in 1989. So you know, we're talking over 30 years ago. Yeah. 
technology has advanced quite a bit since then. <laughs> so, you know, voting machines now are very different than they were then. Um, you know, I, I, a big problem back then was a lot of these uh, uh, electronic voting machines, the coding for them was not well written. And, and I had some experts tell me, well, it's really what they call spaghetti code. So you really couldn't understand, unless you were incredibly sophisticated, how these machines were working. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think now it's all done pretty simple, simply, and it's fairly well regulated and controlled. Back then, it really wasn't. So, you know, there, you, you, it was conceivable that this, you know, electronic voting systems could be used to undermine elections. And I, right. I, I wrote about that. And, you know, looking at what's happened since, I sometimes feel like, you know, You're I'm in some time. tiny, tiny way responsible for this madness that's been <laughs> happening lately. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but I, but, but yeah, it's been certainly an interesting topic. Oh, yeah. And, and, and election security at... is a very interesting topic. But it's, oh, just, yeah. it's just been so corrupted. <laughs> You know, it's, it's hard to even talk about it now, seriously, without someone thinking that you're, you know, you're off the rails. Um, yeah, you're an election, election you know, denier think, and things like that. Uh, you're an election denier or something. So, so you know, there are a lot of people who are very much election deniers and they have, you know, they have a political agenda. And that, you know, that to me is one of the disappointments I think that's happened over the years that I think conspiracy theories in general, I've changed from, you know, as I was saying, for me, they were originally kind of this way of questioning power, questioning authority. Now yeah. they've become tools of power and tools of authority that are themselves used to control and, and, and as means of propaganda to, to sort of bring about sort of a, a massive social program of control. Um, so, so yeah, yeah that's so, my question. So on, on, a whole on, different, whole different landscape. That's my whole thought. What you just said right there is basically sums up my thoughts on the whole Q movement, which I, I think was a total psyop and used against the people. Oh, I, I really yeah. do feel that way. It, it's, it seems, you know, I, I don't really, to be totally honest with you, I don't really know that much about the origins of it. I saw a couple of documentaries, but, but yeah. I, I can say this much. I think it's, it's definitely been used for some, you know, for, to manipulate people. Yeah. It's worked. Yep. 100%. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, well, before, I want to ask you many other things about your career, but besides just the conspiracy thing, but I, I would, uh, you know, I'd be kicking myself later if I didn't ask you just, just these last couple of things here. Do, do you feel like if um, you're in a, a post 9-11 era with, some of the the conspiracy material material that you were working with, do you feel like that you would have a lot of questions about that event that that would have ended up um, in your work? I mean, I, well, I think we did write about it in one of the later editions of the yeah. Creative Conspiracies book. You know, and I felt, I mean, again, I'm sort of writing about conspiracy theories. I'm not right, necessarily right. doing original research on a lot of these things. But, you know, my feeling on that was like there was sort of a watershed moment. I mean, let me yeah. – this will be a bit of a digression, but it all has a point. Um, the watershed moment for me came even before 9-11 happened, several years before, which was 
really, I think, the, the, the death of Princess Diana in the UK. And yes. that was the first time that I, I thought that the Internet really took over. And the other one, which was around the same time, I even before Diana, was, um, I don't remember the chronology, but it was the TWA-800. Yes, um, thank you. I was going to ask you about that, so, too. I yeah. don't mean to cut you off, but yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so, exactly. So both of these things became, were, were the earliest examples of sort of instant conspiracy theories, right? So prior to that, like the people I wrote about in my first book and the types of conspiracy conspiracy theories I wrote about in my first book, um, Conspiracy Cover-Ups and Crimes, you know, I mean, their conclusions might have been off the wall and sometimes completely wrong, but they actually worked to yeah. develop these theories. Like, most of the people I wrote about actually, like, studied and wrote and researched and did all this stuff. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you're coming to, to sensible or sane conclusions. It, it doesn't. <laughs> sometimes they did. A lot of times they didn't. But right. they actually had to put some effort into it. But now, you don't. And and I, what I found with Diana and the TWA 800 instance was that these conspiracy theories, if you want to call them that, just arose literally instantly, like within seconds, minutes yeah. of the actual event occurring. And, you know, we found that. I remember Whalen and I, my co-author on The Greatest Conspiracy thing, we did a piece for Salon.com way back then where we traced uh, what we think we found, like the first earliest mentions of the conspiracy theory around the Diana death, uh, appearing on what was then called, I don't know if you know if you remember this, but there was a part of the internet called the Usenet. And yes. it was different from the World Wide Web. And that was where, like, all these discussions occur. And there was chat groups and, you know, what today would be called chat groups. But then I, were, still, like, I still search those because there was, at the time. Oh, wow. There, there was footage, I, I swear, I swear, there was footage played on CNN of Diana, uh, get, get actually alive and up and walking around and, and screaming at people to leave her alone. And I never saw that footage ever again and no one ever talked about it ever again. And with TWA, the same thing. I'm actually writing an article for a magazine right now on these missile videos that were broadcast on CNN and MSNBC, uh, basically showing a, a missile rising from either the ocean or from the surface uh, somewhere and destroying the plane. And they were never seen again. And there were hundreds of people that saw this, that like on CNN and all these things. Did you come across anything like that? Like missing footage that just well, never existed? Apparently? I mean, I didn't see any of that myself. I mean, I was mainly trying to trace like sort of the, the origins of where the, these ideas the theories came from so i didn't, yeah. i don't remember i mean i remember hearing about all that stuff and reading about it i don't remember ever seeing those videos myself okay. um in either case but uh but you know the point the point that i found with those things was that a lot of times these the especially with diana the conspiracy theory developed so fast that there's simply no way that it could <laughs> yeah. have been based on any evidence at all you know, I mean, it's, yeah. we're talking like a minute after the initial reports would have aired on CNN here or CNN International, like within minutes. Yeah. So, you know, like how could anyone who have this no corroboration possibly have it be based? Yeah. yeah, on anything, whether it's right or wrong, how could it be based on anything? So, so that to me was a real watershed moment, and I think the nine eleven 
conspiracy theories sort of fit in that too. It's sort of like something big happens and people immediately jump to conclusions, you know, and it's understandable why they do when you have these types of, of incidents, traumatic events, people immediately jump to some conclusion about, you know, it didn't really happen. It didn't happen a different way. It was the CIA. It was this, it was that, the other thing, Right. but it's not based on anything. And, and I think, you know, again, with 9-11, it was the same thing. It was like, oh, well, this it must have been this, or it must have been, you know, no plane ever really hit the Pentagon. It's like, this yeah. stuff just comes yeah, out yeah. of thin air. People and, get and, pulled, and, pulled and into now, those. And you, yeah. Yeah. and you still see the same thing, and, and that's really the case with a lot of these theories, and that's why they can be now so easily used as, as I think, tools of manipulation, you know? Because no one's really checking, no one's really looking into them. No one's really—they're—they're they're just propaganda right now. You yeah. Know, whether they're true or false, I mean, propaganda can sometimes even be true, but it's—it's it's still propaganda. And that's to me what conspiracy theories have become—is—is—is is, is propaganda. And that really is disappointing and and kind of upsetting to me. Well, I like the I like the where you're coming from though, because uh, you you know you're not just accepting a conspiracy theory. Kind of like you, it sounds like in the beginning you weren't just accepting official story uh, narratives either. So, and a lot of people that in research communities like this, um, they they get stuck in that one stance, and you, it's like it's almost it's hard. It's almost like the skeptics as well, like where. Nothing is ever a conspiracy, but then you got other people that everything is a conspiracy. So I like kind of what right, you, right. There's sort of two extremes. Yeah, yeah, and I've always sort of felt that way about the so-called skeptic movement too. It's like yeah. I kind of sympathize where they're coming with what they're coming from, but at the same time, it's like they're so dismissive of anything. That anything fit like a narrow view of of what they consider to be you know verifiable reality that. Yeah. It just becomes so narrow. I mean, I remember, I remember like when they were all, the skeptics groups were all upset about, you know, the X-Files, the TV show. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. you just got to lighten up sometimes. It's a TV show. So, yeah. and, and they're just so upset about it and it's brainwashing people and it's just, you know, come on. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, come on. That's a bit much. Yeah. So moving forward, would you ever um, revisit? Conspiracy theories, like as a book, or do you think you kind of have it out of your system? Or I sort of think it's been. I sort of think I've been there and done that, frankly. Yeah, that's, um, right. that's what I figured. You know, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to do a whole lot more on it in terms of writing about it. Yeah, um, yeah I kind of I think that that I've, I've said what I need to say. You know, I did the first book. I did five editions of the second one. I've written a couple <laughs> quite of a bit, yeah. articles, magazine articles. So quite like, a bit of work, yeah. I yeah. Kind of feel like moving, moving on to other things. Um, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. But I'm Would glad you, I did it. You know, it was I'm glad you did it, too. It was, yeah. It was definitely, yeah, interesting. And like I say, ahead of its time when I was doing it. So, uh, You're way ahead of its yeah. time, actually. Yeah. 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 Okay, so what we're going to do, folks... too far ahead of its time, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, what I always was wondering is if some of these UFOs and things were actually our own aircraft, but, like, classified, and they used that extraterrestrial thing as a cover so that people wouldn't talk about it because they'd be shunned, you know, at war- at the water cooler the next day, that type of thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, there's a there was a book, a really good like a by a really good journalist named Andy Jacobson who wrote a, wrote a book about Area 51, where I think if I remember right, I think her what she found was uh, or, or believe or says she found was yeah. that uh, Roswell may have been like the supposed a crashed alien at Roswell may have actually been uh, a crashed UFO, I should say, may have been actually a Soviet. I had heard about that theory or, or something like that. Yeah. And, and that's, and, and she also found that like Stalin, who of course was the, you know, head of the Soviet Union at that time, um, yeah. actually was cooking up this whole plan, this whole sort of disinformation plan to, to cr- try to create a panic in the U S about an alien invasion. It was sort of inspired by the famous war of the world thing, but right. it wasn't well, and, yeah. you know, and 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 he felt that would uh, that would you know be a great way to undermine the U.S. by creating this sort of panic about an alien invasion, and she she felt like that was the origin of some of these these UFO things, or at least Roswell and that sort of thing. So, and what, what was her name again? What was her name again? Her name's Annie Jacobson. She's written a bunch of really good books. Really, really good journalist. Okay. All right, that's fascinating because I hadn't heard that thing about Stalin. Yeah, and I'd like to learn more about that. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah, she wrote a whole book about Area Fifty One, which is, is fascinating. It's, it might be the only sort of serious journalistic. We are gonna die out here. Someone will find us soon. We're lost. We're out of food and water, and our phones are dead. Well, I've got five percent left, but I'm saving it for Wow Days at BJ's Wholesale Club. Are you kidding me? No, it's their three-day event where you save up to sixty-five percent on appliances, tech, furniture, and outdoor products. But I should probably call for help. Wait, do they have air fryers? Save up to sixty-five percent during Wow Days at BJ's Wholesale Club, July tenth through the twelfth. Visit bjs.com/wowdays for details. BJ's absurdly simple savings. Barbados, here we come. Can't believe we're leaving our Jakey all by himself. Honey, he's 25. I think he'll be okay. I got him 17 Hannaford frozen pizzas. (laughs) That's all he eats. Wouldn't it be nice if we got, like, personalized coupons from Hannaford for all those? Would be a lot of savings. This in-flight entertainment is brought to you by Hannaford Rewards. Get personalized coupons based on your purchases. Hmm. See, honey, everything's going to be fine. It's simple to save with my Hannaford Rewards. Investigation of Area 51 that I'm, I'm really aware of, yeah. Yeah, of course, usually, are, you know, conspiracy theories. <laughs> it's always extraterrestrial, and it's never like a, a military operation kind of angle or anything like that. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so what what we'll do is uh, we'll take a little five minute break right now, everyone, and uh, when we come back, um, I'm going to ask uh, Jonathan about his the fictional side of things, uh, if uh, if he'll okay. let me. Yeah, and like comic books and things sure. like that. That like besides conspiracy stuff, like that's the other flip side to my coin is uh, is comics and creativity and movies and screenwriting and all that. So uh, yeah, stay tuned, everyone. What are the dynamics of a crowd? How do you move a mob? How do you excite them? How do you make them feel as one with you? I don't know how. Join them first. Join them? Yes. When you speak to them, speak to them as if you were a member of the mob. Speak to them 
they like rich, and they live make their hate your hate. If they are poor, talk to them of poverty. If they are afraid, talk to them of their fears. If they are angry, give them objects for their anger. But most of all, the thing that is most of the essence is that you make this mob an extension of yourself. What are the dynamics of a crowd? How do you move a mob? How do you excite? How do you make them feel as one with you? Join them. Yes. When you speak to them, speak to them as if you were a member of the mob. Speak to them in their language, on their level. Make their hate your hate. If they are poor, talk to them of poverty. If they are afraid, talk to them of their fears. If they are angry, give them objects for their anger. But most of all, most of all, the essence is that you make this mob an extension of yourself. What are the dynamics of a crowd? How do you move a mob? How do you excite? How do you make them feel as one with you? Join Join them. Yes. When you speak to them, speak to them as if you were a member of the mob. Speak to them in their language. On their level, make their hate your hate. Talk to them of poverty. Talk to them of their fears. Give them objects for their anger. Make this mob an extension of yourself. WallStreetWindow.com Gold, silver, the stock market. WallStreetWindow.com Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. WallStreetWindow.com Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State, understood these trends professionally for many years, and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge. WallStreetWindow.com Go there now. Go there now. Go there now. You're listening to the Ocelli.com radio network. Uncle, do you remember that time when Benjamin Fulford said that an Asian secret society was going to dispatch ninjas to take down the Illuminati? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and the cartoon. Yeah, did that ever work out too good? No. It didn't, did it? It didn't But here on Ocelli.com radio network, things work out a bit better, don't they? Much better. Much I mean, better. it's clearer in understanding about the programs. The programs are much clearer. Getting live people into it, they really have a good conversation going. Much better. Much so, better scene. I say forget Benjamin Fulford and his ninjas and yeah. listen to the Ocelli.com radio network. I agree. It's straight to the point. Straight talk. And I like that idea. Ocelli.com. In denial, secret wars with airstrikes and tanks by Larry Hancock. Secret wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations and are still happening today. Larry Hancock's book, In Denial, rips the cover off many of them. Using new files, it exposes things about the Bay of Pigs that no one has ever written about before. It shows why it really failed and why the United States did not learn from it. It also shows why other countries today are doing secret operations with more success. This is the book that puts what some want to deny into the light. In Denial, Secret Wars with Airstrikes and Tanks. Larry Hancock. For more information, go to Larry-Hancock.com. Pick up your copy of In Denial at Amazon.com in digital or physical form. 
The War State by Michael Swanson explains the great national transformation that took place and put the Kennedy presidency in the context of the times and reveals never-before-published information about the Cuban Missile Crisis. President Kennedy would not have been assassinated if he had been president 200 years ago. His assassination took place in the context of the Cold War and the rise of the national security state. Before World War II, the United States was a continental republic. In the decade that followed, it became an imperial superpower. Generals such as Curtis LeMay not only wanted to invade Cuba, but knew that there were short-range missiles on the island armed with nuclear warheads that they could not destroy because they were on mobile launchers. Their invasion could have led to a third world war, and they wanted to go to war anyway. The War State by Michael Swanson reveals why and will show you what President Kennedy was up against. For more information, thewarstate.com. The views expressed by callers, co-hosts, or anyone else who happens to get on the air at Ocelli.com do not necessarily reflect the views of Ocelli.com or Chuck Ocelli. And we are not responsible for any stupidity which might ensue. Thank you. Go ahead, caller. Yeah, I'm interested in the truth about the JFA assassination. Right. Well, what do you want to know? Judy Baker's wild claim, Oswald girlfriend, he knew Ruby and Barry, cancer weapons. Really? I imagine I could claim I have four wheels. It doesn't make me a wagon, but okay. Oswald was on the kill team and trying to prevent the murder of John Kennedy. Come on now. Has a real effort on the JFA assassination? Go to Amazon.com, enter Judith Baker in her own words. You'll get results for a digital copy of a book where Walt Brown utilizes her own words and the known evidence in the case to get at, well, (laughs) a different perspective, let's say. You can get Judith Barry Baker in her own words from the author himself, signed if you request it, by contacting Dr. Brown at K-I-A-S-J-F-K at AOL.com. It's a fun book and it actually dissects the many, many fantastic claims. Judith Mary Baker, in her own words. Thank you for all the great information.
conversation through conversation. Ocelli.com. Welcome back to Get Mad with yours truly. My special guest tonight is Jonathan Rankin, and he is a writer, screenwriter, journalist, comic book writer, and uh, by all accounts, seems like a really uh, decent, nice guy. Welcome back, Jonathan. Uh, thank you. Glad to be here. Okay, so what what we'll do is we'll get into um, the creative side. Uh, not that the conspiracy stuff wasn't creative, but I mean like the more fictional side, which I guess some conspiracies could be considered that anyway. Uh, that aside, um, how did you get? How did you come to be involved with uh, writing comic books? Because uh, I'm fascinated to no end with that. Wow. Um, yeah, it was really, I mean, in the way I kind of, it, it actually came out of the conspiracy thing. I, I kind of stumbled into it. I've always loved comics. You know, I grew up reading comics and I've always, yeah. you know, I always sort of had this secret ambition to write them, um, to write comics. And, uh, you know, there had been a book, DC Comics was doing this series of books called the Big Book Series, uh, which oh, I yeah. later wrote several of, but at the time I, I had just heard of it. And there was one by a comic book writer named Doug Mensch, who was best known for doing Batman and uh, Master of Kung Fu for Marvel. He wrote a bunch of those. Um, anyway, he wrote this book called The Big Book of Conspiracies. And uh, I, I got it. Obviously, I was interested in that very much at the time. And I remember reading it and looking at all the, you know, his citations of where his source material came from and seeing my book cited over and over and over again. And I was like, well, I would like to write comics, too. You know, why didn't they ask me to write this book since they're using a lot of the material that I have done? <laughs> right. So, but in, instead, of, instead of getting mad about it or, or, or something like that, I decided, well, Let's see what I can do here. And I, you know, I, I found somehow Doug Bench's phone number and I called him up just out of the blue. And he was thrilled to hear from me and thrilled to talk to me. And he's a great guy and uh, was really nice to me and really helpful. And he introduced me to his editor at DC, uh, at least his editor on the, the Big Book series. Uh, it was a guy named Andy Helfer. And so I met Helfer and it just kind of worked out. I don't even remember what the sequence of events was after that too well. I just met with him and he, he gave me an assignment to write this thing called the Big Book of Scandal. And so I, I did that and I did a few others. I did one called the Big Book of Bad. I was the main writer on it. There was a couple others. I did the Big Book of the 70s, which was a lot of fun. And, yeah. uh, Couple of couple of I did one called the Big Book of Grimm, which was which was uh, all adaptations of Grimm's fairy tales. Sort of the the idea was to do sort of the original Grimm's fairy tales, which were all very violent and bloody, very dark, and yeah, and scary, yeah, very very dark. You know, I mean, you, you, people think of like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves as a Disney movie, but the original stories were really really uh, pretty brutal. That's all I got to say. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they were designed in the, in the really the, I guess like the 18th century, 19th century. I can't remember exactly when, but, but yeah. uh, probably more the 18th century in Germany to sort of teach children 
moral lessons. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, you know, the lessons of things like Little Red Riding Hood was like, don't stray from the path. If you stray <laughs> from the path, whatever that path is, you're in big trouble. So, so yeah, so, so I did that. And, um, you know, from there, I, I met another editor at Vertigo, whose name was Shelly uh, Bond, and uh, another really good person and a really good editor. And she, I was at a, I was at a convention. I was at one of the San Diego conventions. And uh, she just sort of came up to me and said, I really like what you're doing with the big books. I'd really, you know, we, we should try to do something together. And she, she was an editor at DC Vertigo, which at the time doesn't exist anymore. But at the time, it was sort of the, I guess you'd say it was like the HBO of comics. You know, it was like <laughs> yeah. comic books. More mature. More for like, yeah, for like 17 years and over, you know, we could have some nudity Nothing too explicit, but we had. I like, think even like and, even Clyde Barker was writing for Vertigo at one point. I think <laughs> he might have. Yeah, he might have. I don't remember, but it, it was that type of thing. So, so yeah. So I wrote a couple of things for Vertigo, and then they hired me to be an editor. So I was an editor at Vertigo, and I worked in New York City for uh, you know seven years. And that's I mean, my comic book adventure story. No, that's awesome though, because you, you, particularly the swamp thing. Um, did you ever, were you able to ever come across uh, Alan Moore or uh, any of the other previous? I never met, I never met him. I never did meet him. Um, he sort of had this ongoing feud with DC Comics. So he, he never like, never really left his home in the UK. At the, by the time I was there, he had stopped going to conventions or anything like that. So I never got to meet him, but I met a bunch of other people. I mean, came to know like Grant Morrison a little bit and uh, Neil Gaiman, people like that. Um, what were those yeah, experiences? It was, fun. It was like, really a great time. Like with those two um, gentlemen. I mean, Grant, I'm, yeah, Grant, I met a number of times. He's a, he's a, he's a real character. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a good guy, but he's definitely a character. And, um, Really good writer, very sort of off the wall guy, really into a lot of these sort of spiritual things and magic and, and stuff like that. Um, and Neil, you know, I, I, I edited a thing called, uh, Neverwhere, which was a series that was turned into a graphic novel based on his book called Neverwhere. So I edited that and we had to work with him a bit on that really was my main experience with him. Um, you know, he had to approve everything. The writer on it was, Mike Carey, who's yeah. uh, just a really, really good comic book writer, and he did the adaptation um, and the and for the script. And Glenn Fabry was the artist, another just amazing artist. And um, uh, so yeah, so we kind of had to work with Neil to go get his approvals on stuff. So so yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a great time. I mean, I really enjoyed doing it. And um, you know, Vertigo doesn't exist anymore. And when choosing between dining out or working out, there's one dynamic duo that can help you with both. Brax Grill and Tap and Millennium Fitness. Brax and Millennium share the same goal, making sure you're happy and healthy. Whether it's time spent sharing a meal with friends and family or time invested in your physical health, the team Brax Grill and Tap and Millennium Fitness are here for you. Don't choose between feast mode and beast mode when you can have both. Visit BraxGrillandTap.com or MillenniumFitnessGym.com today. DC moved to DC Comics moved to Los Angeles or Burbank, yeah. so it's all very very different than when I was there. And you know, 
Did you have a good? Different. Did you have a good experience interviewing uh, Stan Lee? Uh, I got to meet him once, and oh yeah, that was a pretty cool. But uh, by that point, he, he I don't think he really wanted to do the uh, the convention circuit anymore. You could kind of tell, which I don't blame him. But I don't blame him either. I mean, I, I interviewed him a couple of times. I interviewed him once when he and when he uh, had started this company called Stanley Media that sort of fell apart in a. That had a scandal with uh, the Clintons. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even remember it all, but it was something crazy going on with that. And I felt really bad for Stan. Yeah. You know, he sort of got taken for a bit of a ride and it just wasn't great. I mean, you know, he was, he he really, he gets a lot of, he gets a bad rap sometimes. And I think he doesn't deserve it. I I think he's one of the great figures in comics, obviously. And was a great writer. And yeah, uh, I think he doesn't, he's often, there's been kind of this revisionism where he doesn't really get credit for the writing that he did as much, and uh, he should. But, he kind of uh, created anyway, all of our, yeah, modern I, I, day, our modern day Greek gods, he, basically. He really did, you know, in collaboration with his artists, but I really think that he oh, yeah. he did a lot. So, so um, yeah, and then I interviewed him again later for the LA Weekly, and they were both great experiences. I mean, he was super nice and super you know, very, very uh, forthcoming and just a good guy, just a good guy all around. And he's definitely missed. He had a great run though, you know, made it to, yeah. I think in his early nineties and uh, um, yeah. Wow. You know, I mean, just, just, just a good guy. Just a good yeah. guy. Yeah. It's and, a, and a, it's unfortunate towards the end of his life, uh, what he had to deal with, but, um, but I also, yeah, it wasn't great. It wasn't great. Also, I for those that are not familiar, could, would you be able to describe a gentleman by the name of Harvey Picar? Because I was fascinated with this. Yeah, this I worked person. with Harvey. Yeah, he was another really good person, and he's very missed. He just passed too young, unfortunately. He was only in his 60s. But, yeah, I, met, I, I, I did a book with him at Vertigo. I, I brought him in. Um, there's this artist named Dean Haspiel who I've worked really closely with and, and became good friends with. But Dean had worked with Harvey. And I remember he, right when I started, even before I started Vertigo, I, I had lunch with Dean and he was telling me some ideas and he, he mentioned Harvey. And I was like, oh, let's do that. Let's see if we can get Harvey to do something for Vertigo. And we did manage to get him to write a graphic novel called The Quitter, which was really well, the first time he had written sort of about his childhood. You know, he'd written yeah. so many things that are, you know, all of everything he did was autobiographical. But he'd never really done something that went into great depth about his upbringing. And, uh, and so that's what the quitter was. And it was amazing. I thought it was fantastic. And Dean drew it. Um, but I worked a lot. And then, then we had him do American Splendor. So the last series yes. of American Splendor was done with Vertigo. And I, I edited that. And we had a lot of really good artists on it. You know, Dean, Dean Hatfield did some, but we got a lot of big comic book artists to do stories. Um, you know, Eddie Campbell and uh, Darwin Cook, I think, the late great Darwin Cook did a cover yeah. for one of them. Uh, Richard Corbin did a, did a, another late great, uh, Richard Corbin did a, a story of Harvey's. So uh, it was really interesting and really fun. And, you know, he was he was great, you know. He he was he was a lot like the image that you see of him in in the movie American Splendor. I was going to ask you what your what your take um, was on on the movie if they did him justice. Yeah, or not. but but he 
they they did do him justice. And but he was he was very much a good guy. Like he really considered himself a mensch, you know, a stand up guy. Yeah. And he was, you know, he really was. And and for all his crankiness and sort of bad temperedness sometimes, yeah. you know, it was kind of a front. He really was a softy. He really was a good guy. He really cared about people. Um, and, you know, I mean, he could be a little short sometimes, but that was fine. That was just Harvey. And, you know, he didn't really suffer fools very gladly, mm-hmm. but he, he, he just was a good person and really a real innovator and in a lot of ways a creative genius. I mean, he kind of invented this whole genre of the autobio comic. Yeah. It's since gone on, you know, in, in the alternative comics world to be kind of the standard genre, you know, it's like you have to almost write about yourself to succeed in that, that area of it. So it's he, almost he like really a, invented all that. It's like a Hunter Thompson approach to it, you know, putting, you know, except that, well, he wasn't searching out a story necessarily like Hunter was, but just the autobiographical approach, like you were saying. And he was probably the, for yeah, me. he was he, the story. Yeah, he was the story. And he was the best, second, I'll say this, he was the second, in my opinion, he was the second best let David Letterman guest behind Andy Kaufman. Yeah, he, he was quite a, quite a, quite a presence on Letterman. But yeah, he was, he, he was even got kicked else. off from Letterman um, at one point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, he was, I mean, that guy you saw on Letterman, I mean, when I met him, he was a bit older. So he had, I wouldn't exactly say mellowed, but he'd calmed down a little bit from yeah. those days. But, but at the same time, he was definitely the same guy. Like he just yeah. didn't, you know, what you saw with Harvey was what you got. He, 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 there was no act. There was no pretension. And, and he just, you know, he just was a unique character. And, you know, you see in his comics, what he really believed was that everyday life, you know, just the ordinary shopping at the supermarket, just going to work every day, yeah. you know, just anything you do is really worth writing about and worth talking about and, and, and has dignity and is a great story in and of itself, just the ordinary parts of everyday life. And, and he really almost better than anybody, I think showed that in his work i don't think there's uh too many people like that that are still around or at least not publicly you know no no there really aren't there really aren't he was one of a kind (laughs) truly truly one of a kind kind of like like in my opinion kind of like andy coffin was too um well yeah kind of like that yeah like i don't even know iconoclast is that the right term i'm probably getting that wrong but he, but, yeah, no, he was definitely an iconoclast. Yeah, he yeah. definitely was an iconoclast, I would say. Well, what, this so, is also yeah. fasc, fascinating. Um, you came to be involved with or in writing a, a musical based on the life of Dusty Springfield. I did, I did. That was really more my wife's doing. And I, I mean, she, it was her vision. Her name's Kirsten Holly Smith. Uh, she's also, she, she has her own original music out now under her stage name, which is Kiki Holly. So if you go on Spotify and search out Kiki Holly, K-A-K-I-H-O-L-L-I, you'll see her music, but she did. She's done some acting too, right? Fascinated by Dusty. She's done some acting. She's been in several movies. 
But um, but yeah, she acted in this. I mean, she starred as Dusty Springfield, and we wrote the show together, the the book for the show, as they call it. Yeah, is basically the script. The music, of course, we did not write. It was all the great songs that Dusty did, which were written by some of the great songwriters in history. You know, Burt oh, Bacharach yeah. and Michael Legrand, and, and you know a lot of people like that who just just fantastic songwriters with great songs like son of a preacher man and you don't have to say you love me and things like that that you know just have, have since become these kind of iconic songs and great music but, uh, but yeah we, we did great great music and we just wanted to tell her life story as best we could and honor her and just show you know what a groundbreaker she was you know for women in the music industry at a time when <clears throat> there really weren't that many yeah. stars who were women in pop music or rock music. Um, and, you know, she was also a lesbian, which was yep. something that was not very widely accepted back right, then right. at all in the sixties. So, um, yeah, she was not really amazing, talked amazing about. Character. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I'd say obviously, you know, the show was the show and it's done now, but it's, it's had a couple other runs. It ran in the UK for a little while. Um, and it's have run in some regional theaters. So, have you tried to make people it will look for it? It's called Forever Dusty. Yeah, Forever Dusty. And I, I talked to over you. I apologize. So, yeah, it, so it's still running right now. No Forever Dusty. It's not and, running anymore. It's not running oh, anymore, okay. but it's run, it's run a few times. I wish have it was you, still running. That would be great. <laughs> have you tried to turn it, go the biopic route with it? Oh yeah, we've got we've got actually two different scripts. So if anyone's listening, yeah, if any any producers or studios are listening, then for all by all means, uh, get in touch because we've got a couple of scripts out there um, that uh, you know have gone around and been really well received, but no one's made a movie about Dusty Springfield yet. We're not the only ones who've had had proposals for films about her. Yeah, there's been several others, and none of them have ever come to fruition. Um, but ours, I think, you know, would be great. That would be <laughs> fantastic. That's why I bring it up. Really, I mean, yeah, really good. I mean, they're bringing Elvis yeah. back and things like that. So it seems like the time would be uh, prime. Oh, yeah, yeah I, I think it would. And she was again such a fascinating person and an important person, and but one who's sort of I wouldn't say forgotten because she's not forgotten, but at the same time, maybe somewhat overlooked in terms of the influence that she had. On, on pop culture and the music industry in general. Yeah, she was awesome. She's great. And I, I, I really do hope that, I really do hope that you have some luck in that department because that would be a fascinating movie. Um, it would be great. It would be great. But like I say, it's been tried by us and several others, several people with more money than we do. And yeah. it just hasn't clicked yet. So it's, it's going to take somebody at a studio or some producer with a vision to, uh, you know, to, to, to see the merit in this and, and actually put the money behind it and make a movie out of it. No, I'll make some calls. We'll see, we'll see what happens. No, no, no. Go for it. Make some <laughs> calls. You know, no, you know how to find me. <laughs> yes, yeah, so definitely. Well, <laughs> you know where we're, we're coming towards the end and you've been a great sport. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, what, what are you working on currently? Um, well, right now I should have a couple books coming out this year. Um, one is a graphic novel. Uh, it's sort of about, uh, without giving too much away yet, it's about kind of about the mafia 
Oh, wow. Um, it's based on a true story, based on a true sort of mafia story. Um, and that's a graphic novel that should be coming out from Dynamite Comics. And then I have a book of journalism that's supposed to be coming out sometime later this year. It's going to be called How California Works. And it's all a lot of the writing and reporting I've done about I don't know what the title says, the nuts and bolts of, of California government, California, uh, you know, policy, California news. I mean, lo- lots of interesting stuff. And it, it doesn't just affect California, but also affects the whole country. So, so am I, um, am I taking a leap? Am I take, taking a, a leap here by uh, suggesting that maybe the Brown family of California might be included in there somewhere? Well, I mean, maybe a little bit. I mean, definitely Governor Brown is mentioned yeah. in the book for sure because he was the governor for a total of 16 years, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. Two separate separate stints. But, yeah, but, but a lot of it also is sort of about kind of the nuts and bolts, things that have sort of built California, the industries, energy. So there's a lot about, uh, you know, the various energy sources that we have. And it's all like I really, I think, kept it. It's very explanatory. It's like explanatory journalism, hopefully very yeah. entertaining, I hope. Oh, <laughs> but, yeah. But also trying to ex- explain these things without any sort of hopefully any like political point of view one way or the other. Just like, look, this is how it works. And this is how these things it might seem maybe a little boring. Some of these things about government, how they really affect your life. You know, they yeah. really affect your everyday life. And so a lot of people just don't get involved in local government as much as they should. Right. Because, you know, the things that affect more, much more than the president or Congress or anything, your life is affected by your local government. It's, and, yeah, local, uh, it starts locally. So that's sort of what I'm trying to do. Yeah, yeah that, really I does, really appreciate does. that. Yeah. And, um, no, that is so true, too. Like, um, if you're going to have any kind of change, it seems like it would be on the local level that hasn't been too compromised yet, you know? Yeah, that's where it has to start, really, because, you know, everyone focuses on the big things, and rightly so. You know, who's the president, and what is Congress doing, and senators. All oh, that's obviously really important. Don't right. get me wrong. But the things that affect your daily life, you know, the like how much taxes you pay on your house if you own one, or if you don't own one, your rent is determined. You know, all these things are <laughs> yeah. determined by your local and state governments and county governments not so much by the federal government. So so that's what I'm writing about from the California point of view, but I think it really applies to the whole country. So so hopefully people will check that out. Both of those should be out later this year. I don't have exact dates yet. Oh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. And will you come back when I'm able to um, get Forever Dusty off the ground and everything and we can talk about it? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Okay. You know where to find me. Awesome. And where, right. where where can people find you if you want to be found, that is? And where can the people also check well, out your I work? Mean, you can always go to, yeah, you can go to jonathanbankin.net. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-V, as in Victor, A-N-K-I-N, dot net, not dot com, dot net. Yeah. Uh, and that's my website. And I have, there's a link there to send me an email. Um, and it's got some basic information about me and some links to a bunch of the journalistic stories that I've written. So that's a good place to start. And, you know, people can find me on Twitter. I'm at John Bankin, J-O-N-B-A-N-K-I-N. 
Yeah, awesome. So yeah, it's probably the best way is to to find me and reach out to me. Well, thank you, sir. Oh, I'm sure they will. Yeah, and I, I'm believe me, I got all kinds of other questions that I could ask you too <laughs> down the line. But um, yeah, no, I can't wait to talk to you again. And uh, yeah, everyone have a great great weekend.